Good morning, Remnant Church. Morning. Yeah, got the kids excited. Sure, I'm happy to have the Halls with us here today. We've been friends 30 years, and they've put up with sermons like the one you're about to hear for about that length of time. My family and I have had an amazing time with you guys these last few days. Today we start our long journey towards submission ministries all the way on the East Coast. One of the reasons that I love being here with you is I genuinely feel the authentic attributes of the body of Christ. And that always makes it hard to leave. The good news is the congregation that I'm going to is also the authentic body of Christ. I've had the opportunity to meet with your pastors a lot, and um, on Tuesday night, we had extended conversations about the greatest gift that was ever given to mankind. Now, I know even as I say that, you know, the little Christian Rolodex drops down, Rolodex, that's not a thing anymore, your uh, website menu drops down, and uh, you think, it's Jesus! but that's not what we were talking about. Um, Say, so, oh, oh, we're Pentecostals. It's, it's the Holy Ghost! <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that's not what we were talking about. Uh, on Tuesday, we were speaking about Acts eleven eighteen, which said, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an amazing gift it is to be empowered to turn from the course that you are presently on when you realize that it's unfruitful or offensive to God and then pursue righteousness with all your heart. When you think about it, everything in the kingdom actually starts and is maintained by repentance. If you have the idea that repentance is something that happens when you get saved, you need to go back and revisit your salvation experience because repentance is something that we see as a gift in our life every day. On Wednesday evening, we had a team unity meeting where every couple searched the word and the heart of God so that the spirit could use each one of us to give life-giving speech prophetically to one another. My, my family was edified. Weren't you edified, Jen? By the way, if you don't know that sexy one on the fourth row that is a grandmother with nine grandkids now, she, uh, she belongs to me. Uh. Yeah, so Psalm 19.7 is really true when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When we got into the word and then prayed during the week for one another, God gave us speech, each couple for the other couple, that was reviving to our soul. You know, nobody can keep you from doing that with the body of Christ. You can do that anytime you want to. It doesn't have to be a scheduled meeting. You can Pray all week just because you wanted to. Search the word all week just because you wanted to. And then show up and see another couple and give them life through your speech. 
This team loves you as a body. I witnessed that firsthand. Each person there was examining their heart daily. They were searching the word daily because they want to provide guidance for you as shepherds within this community as you walk with Messiah. When you think about it, the fivefold ministry truly is a gift to the body of Christ. And it's a gift because there's not that many people on this planet that are genuinely concerned for your welfare. I mean, if you haven't figured it out, not all your Facebook friends are actually friends. People might not be looking at your Instagram or whatever ridiculous thing you might be involved with because they have your best interest in mind. And here, you have a community that is searching the word in the heart of God, concerned for one another. That's a rare and special thing. On Thursday night, we, uh, we met at the Hunter's home together. Thank you for that, Morgan. I feel at home at your home. And uh, in that meeting, we discussed the book of Acts as a kind of call to action. <laughs> and... Uh, we saw the early community of believers and what they accomplished by spreading the message of the kingdom from Jerusalem to Rome in only 30 years, having planted churches all along the way. You were encouraged that one of the things that you can do right now to reverse this road from Rome or the ends of the earth to Jerusalem is continuing genuine, real, biblical discipleship. I love that there's a lot of mission-sending organizations. I love that there are zealous young men that want to go do it. I wish they were prepared to do what they're doing. We want to represent him well. You were encouraged to continue to form this community in all of the depth and reality of the kingdom so that when members from here go to other places, they've been in a, immersed in a complete pattern that can be repeated anywhere in the world and is not just a sales pitch somewhere. You're going to reproduce a way of life that demonstrates the kingdom. And certainly that requires, I mean, Jesus didn't train them in two years. Jesus was with them three and a half years. And then they stayed in the community in Jerusalem for almost 10. Friends, that was not sin. That was them getting acquainted with what they were going to spread all over the world. So that what was spread matched the original. So we spoke of the need to reverse the road that originally went from Jerusalem to Rome. So that we Gentiles could focus on bringing the gospel from the ends of the earth back to Jerusalem as the prophets command us to do. During that meeting, I made an appeal and it was not for your money. It was more audacious than that. I looked right at Tracy and said, I don't want your money. I want your son. I also want your daughters. I want the next generation sold out for the gospel in a way that when they're 30, we don't have to spend from 30 to 38 retraining them and miss the window in their life. Now, I said that straight to Tracy because I think she's doing a good job training her son. His name's Trevor, but he reminds me of Timothy in the Bible. And what an attribute it was to Paul on his apostolic work to run into a young man 
named Timothy that had a godly mom and a godly grandma was a help to Paul. There was nothing that helped him quite like Timothy. Well, that's what I'm looking for from the churches. I hope all of you put feet on the field with us. Many of you already have. I hope all of you contribute to what we're doing, but that's not really our goal. Our goal, blanketly, unashamedly, is I want your children. <laughs> that came from Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Now, I think you know that my request doesn't spring from an impure desire or dishonest gain. Who stands up with a global mission campaign and looks people in the eye and says, I don't want your money. And I don't know if any of you are rich, but the last rich person that I talked to that wanted to contribute to it, I told him he hadn't earned the right. You're not allowed. I don't want it. And there's no way for you to give it. Support your local church and then we'll see what happens. I genuinely believe that your children are the, the, your children and disciples are the key to completing the will of God on earth. So then on Friday night, girls, I'm sorry. On Friday night, I preached a message to the men of Remnant called Drive It Like You Stole It. And while I apologize that the girls couldn't be there, I trust you'll find your men improved based on them applying that message. The message was largely based on the life of Jehu from 2 Kings chapters 9 through 10. The men were encouraged to free themselves from the fear of making a mistake. Ladies, if you're attracted to a timid little house cat, something's wrong with you. These men are called to be bold and righteous like lions. And since none of us are quite to the standard of Christ, we're just credited with it, we're going to make some mistakes along the way. It's going to be okay. You'd be better off with a husband that makes mistakes but also makes movement in the kingdom than a husband who is terrified to make a mistake and sits like that little house cat on his salvation all day long. We work to cultivate the bold, tenacious faith that literally throws caution to the wind and boldly acts on the things that we believe the Lord is revealing to us. The men had a time of bona fide repentance, finished the evening in prayer and empowerment, focused on 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. I truly believe that it was a turning point for this ministry. Not because of who was speaking, not because of any reason other than Adonai saw fit to unlock something that was already here within the heart of every man, but they needed encouragement and permission to be who God's already called them to be. They learned not to sit back and wait for their pastor to do it. He's already demonstrated it. He'll continue to for the rest of his life. 
But God calls you to imitate your pastor as he imitates Christ. As each man stands up into the call of God, it will only further this community. Ladies, you should be happy to know we were pretty excited about y'all. In fact, I used you like a stick to beat these men upside the head. Said, these girls are zealous. You're going to let a girl be more zealous than you, man of God? These girls are quick to repent. You're going to let a little girl beat you to an altar, man of God? So ladies, don't, uh, don't be surprised if these men muscle you out of the way and beat you to what the Lord is doing here today. And look, you can let them win. It's okay. God's encouraging something that this world desperately needs. It's called holy masculinity. So now I'm at the end of our time here together, and uh, I'm faced with, what do I share with you today, you know? It's a difficult task to face, and I, I want to let you in on the process, okay? I'm an incredibly transparent and uh, sometimes brutally honest minister. Our critics use every bit of that to shame us, but I'm unashamed. You're family, and I want to tell you exactly what's going on. It turns out that every minister, including this one, would like to preach a message that's well-received. But when you make that your aim as a minister, it slowly warps you into preaching for applause. There's enough of that in the church world today. So while I really would love it if you love the message, I'm not allowed to have that in my heart and mind. So the first thing that I had to do was get rid of that. Although I'm not entirely sure I'm ever completely rid of that. It's just something that I'm working at. And I, I hope you will too. Every minister has a storehouse of messages that he feels like, man, that one really went over well in the past. It's always tempting to simply pick one of those previous messages. But that can really result in feeding people yesterday's bread. Worse than that, it's not that the message is not good. It's that you won't be sure that you're actually in step with the Spirit. And that's an important part of our process. Not to mention the fact that it reveals that you're just insecure and want to please people. Every minister, and let me just say it this way, every man has a nagging fear. Maybe I won't be able to hear from God correctly this time. Yeah. In fact, it's that fear that lingers in the back of all believers' minds and thoughts, and the enemy is always working at it. In fact, that's exactly what I'm going to speak to you about today. One of the young men in our Friday night meeting who is genuinely called the greatness. I love him. I've watched him grow up. He grew up in front of us, and he's going to get married in this building. But I don't want to call him out or you to know his name. <laughs> in a moment of sincere transparency, he said, Pastor, I'm often worried that I may not receive real direction or a real word from God. Sometimes he's waiting for Charlton Heston to speak from heaven and Part the clouds and, of course, speak in King James English. 
because that's, that's how Christians portray hearing from God very often. We have, well, we passed a United Methodist Church on the way here, and many in that crowd in, you know, would say you can't hear from God. Of course, we passed Pentecostal churches on our way here, and they would say that you can hear from God, and I love that that's true, but I'm not sure any of us hears from God quite like it is portrayed. God doesn't blog to you. You know, he, <laughs> when his word shows up in power and presence, uh, it tends to make a serious impact. So if the Lord spoke to you on Tuesday and on Friday, you're not sure what the Lord said, I'm not sure the Lord spoke to you. And yet the standard is not so high that the word is far from you or not near you or not in your mouth or in your heart. I think maybe what we should say is I was reasonably persuaded for the most part that God was pushing me in this direction and I want in faith to respond. But that's clearly too long, so we as Christians just shorten it to I was led or God said. And, and I'm not picking on that speech at all. I'm talking about the innate fear that each of us has that we may not be directed divinely in our action. I'm quite sure that each of you has wrestled with that feeling. So I'm going to take the balance of our time to address the subject, and if you're taking notes, which if you don't value what we do, you don't have to take notes. It's never hurt my feelings. Um, but it's possible in the next couple hours that I've got your attention that I may say something that you will want to remember, especially since I'm speaking the living oracles of God from his word. The message will be titled, Secrets. Yeah. You can relax. It's not the name of a gentleman's club as far as I know. I never knew why they called those things gentlemen's clubs. Only pigs go into them. But I've already digressed from the message. Look, as we start with the title, Secrets, I, I do want to tell you, when Joe stood up and read Luke 10, he was all on top of the message. You've revealed these things to the little children. Yes, Father, it was your good pleasure. That's what Joe prophesied in worship. I didn't call Joe and tell him what I was going to be speaking about today. Apparently the Lord did. You know, I didn't tell Devin what I was going to be speaking about today when he prophesied from Isaiah 50 and, and verse 4 and said, the Lord has given me an instructed time. Morning by morning, he wakens my ear. See, our, our, our topic is really about how to hear from God. Now, I, I'm going to be completely honest with you. One of the reasons I'm calling out those prophecies is because they were an encouragement to me, which is what prophecy is. The other reason is I doubt seriously that a month from now, these guys will be jumping up and down going, on that Sunday, on that Sunday, I heard from God. I think that feels kind of routine to you. And I both wanted to encourage you that you did hear rightly and tell you today I'm talking about a lot more than prophetic speech in a protected group amongst brothers. There's not a lot of risk in that. Uh, I'm actually talking about letting loose lions and lionesses on the world that believe they can hear from God in the wild. 
not just on a holy day with a holy guy in holy clothes for a holy fee, but out outside the walls. So let's go to Acts 8. That's where our text is going to be. I took 20 minutes to introduce a message which tells you I need more practice preaching, and thank you for giving me that. In Acts 8, we have a unique story about a eunuch. So we're going to pick up in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. When you think about it, that really is the question, isn't it? How can I unless someone guides me? We all feel like this sometimes. Maybe even the majority of the time. Sometimes in the charismatic world, we don't admit to it, but it's the reason you're tempted to turn to a commentary before you've really wrestled with a verse. It's the reason that you want to hear what a famous person said about a verse before you state your opinion about the verse. How can I unless someone guide me? Man, that reeks of insecurity. And yet, it's genuinely how this man felt. Is there anybody brave enough to admit that sometimes you feel incapable of hearing from God? Good job, guys. We've been practicing speaking up in church, speaking up before the girls do. Let's cut to the chase, though. The Holy Spirit did send Philip, didn't he? In fact, Philip ran to the meeting. All you've ever heard preached about is how Philip, 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 you're always Philip in the story. I wanted to engage with the Ethiopian eunuch. More than that, the Ethiopian, even in his feelings of inadequacy, was already doing something. He's already reading the words of Isaiah and seeking truth. Now, you know the results of their meeting. Or if you don't, you can certainly read it all the way through. I'm going to help you with that here in just a minute. The Ethiopian takes an enormous and bold step in the way of Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you from the beginning of this message, that's what I'm looking for from you. An enormous, bold step for Jesus Christ the second we leave this building. If that doesn't make you tense up a little bit, well, then you don't take church all that seriously. The Ethiopian takes an enormous and bold step in the way of Jesus Christ. It is the Ethiopian 
who was able to determine the next step God ordained for him. I want you to get this. In the passage we just read, he did not believe that he could understand Isaiah. He feels inadequate. And he says, how can I unless somebody guide me? But by the time that we're going to pick up in this verse, there's been an incredible shift in the Ethiopian. Look at Acts 8.36. And as they were going along the road... They came to some water, and the eunuch said, wait, who said this? The eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Look at 38. And he, the antecedent to he, is the Ethiopian eunuch. And he, the Ethiopian eunuch, commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. It was the Ethiopian who saw the water, not Philip. It was the Ethiopian who challenged Philip with the proposition of being baptized. There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, you may not read it with that influence because you... (laughs) Spent years training yourself to be a quiet little church mouse. But the language here is somewhat aggressive. He doesn't say, please, sir, would you consider baptizing me? He says, what prevents me from being baptized? There is a challenge in this statement. And I'm not suggesting it's fleshly. I'm suggesting that it's the kind of bold authority that comes on a man when he believes that he's heard from God. It was the Ethiopian who commanded the chariot to stop so that he could be baptized. What started out in fear and inadequacy grew into boldness and authority. I believe that's something that God wants to do in every heart in here. Now, I will always speak to the congregation at large. And I do that because it's a privilege to do that. But I want you to know I am also speaking to all of the pastors. We must grow in boldness and authority. Not that Mike can hear from God, but that every man here can. I actually believe that the Lord's arranged these events in a way that we can have this Ethiopian experience. Having it's the reason I walked you through everything that we've talked about this week already. I believe that we are rightfully repenting, rightfully setting our desires on what God wants, rightfully identifying fear and insecurity in us so that we can walk in new levels of boldness and authority. Now, I think it's important to point out something that I'm quite sure you missed. Where did all of this take place? See, the NIV says something like on a desert road, which that's cool. The ASV, as inartful and awkward as the English is, is often closer to the Greek text. And uh, I hate being deprived of the dynamic translation, but I love catching things that I wouldn't catch if the sentence was written like we would say it. The ESV says that is a desert place. It's 826. 
Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Uh, if that didn't catch your ear, uh, we have at least a few men in here with messianic leanings tonight. And I love that, or this morning. Let's just dig into that for a second. Because they may catch it, I don't know. But by the end of this, you'll all catch it. The Ethiopian was in a desert place of desperation and great need. He was trying but felt inadequate and was insecure about his own ability to hear from God. By the way, did you know that every English title for every book in your Torah is wrong? When you're looking at the Older Testament, or maybe you call it the Pentateuch in the first five books, when you see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are titles that were given that the Hebrew people never accepted because they're not correct. I don't mind calling them that. I still do. But it turns out that Genesis' name is Bereshit. It's, it's very easy to figure out what the names are in Hebrew. All you have to do is take the very first few words of each book, and that is what they call the book. It's, it's an ingenious system. So what we call Genesis, they call Bereshit, and it comes literally from the first few words in the beginning. Of course, Exodus is Shemot, and the first few words of Exodus are, these are the names. Then we get to Leviticus, which is actually called Veikra, which is the first few words of Leviticus in Hebrew, which is, and he called. And then you get to the book of Numbers, which is more correctly Bemidbar, and of course it means in the desert. And then you get to Deuteronomy, which is more accurately Devarim, which comes from the first words of Deuteronomy, and he gave his words. So let me put that together for you and see if you can make the connection to the Ethiopian. In the beginning... These are the names he called in the desert and gave his words. The story of the Ethiopian is the story of all of God's people. We're all in a desert place, but Adonai gives you his words. He did it for Israel. He did it for the Ethiopian, and he will do it for you. Interestingly, the Ethiopian story starts with finding the word in the desert. That's where the story begins. He's sitting in a chariot reading the words of Isaiah. But it ends with him finding water in a desert. There is a gem there. But I'm going to keep going. We don't have to tell you everything that we know about the scripture. You need to dig and see if you can figure that out. I'll also give you another hint as we go. But what were the essential elements of the Ethiopian's transformation into such audacious faith? First, the Ethiopian was in a desert but seeking direction in the scripture. Man, that's an important element. Men don't tend to seek direction when they feel like they got it all together. Which is why being repentant all of the time is so important. 
Men don't tend to seek help and direction when you have everything you need. In fact, let's just, let's just take this one element for a second. I'm not going to take up an offering. I've never done that. I don't do that. Um, I'm not after your pocketbooks. I just want you to think. If Jesus told you to pray for your daily bread, let's take that on a Peshat level for just a second. Then having a piece of bread that day for you to eat is a really cool thing. It's good. You're not hungry. That's awesome. You have everything you need. Of course, if you had two pieces that day, you might feel like that was better, and you might feel like that was better because uh, then you would not have to really be stressed, you know, on Tuesday. And if you had three pieces, then you wouldn't be stressed on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. And so in that way, you would store up bread for yourself, but you would no longer have the privilege of being provided for daily. Now, since we all have pantries in our house, clearly, you know, there's a disconnect here somewhere. And um, I'm not preaching against pantries. If you had a walking stick, if you hurt your left knee in a building project somewhere in Texas, and you had a walking stick, one walking stick is an amazing aid. It actually helps. It makes you walk pain-free. Of course, two walking sticks gives you a spare. That's kind of cool. Three gives you two spares. 300 becomes a burden upon your back that eliminates what the walking stick was actually doing for you. See, God will put you in a desert for your own benefit because it makes you look for water. It makes you look for direction. It makes you look for things. You know what would be better? Is if for the glory of God, we willingly put ourselves in deserts. If he didn't have to take something from you, you're like, it's yours anyway, Lord. Yeah. Men like, C well, we'll preach about C.T. Studd another day. Let's look at the second element of the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian was open and honest about his fears and concerns. I mean, the guy's an important official. He's cruising in a chariot, the Mercedes of his day. But he just openly is like, how could I if somebody didn't guide me? First, being in a desert. Second, look at the honest transparency about his fears and concern. No posturing, no deflection, no victimhood, blaming someone else. He just said, how can I? Look, if this guy were American Idol contestant, he would have started that conversation with, I know you asked me if I understand Isaiah, but I want you to know what they did to me when I was a baby. He had a really unique problem. Third, the Holy Spirit in this story had already sent direction before the Ethiopian is aware and it is running towards him. Three elements for you to remember. First, the Ethiopian is in the desert, but seeking the scripture already. Second, the Ethiopian is open and honest and transparent about his fears and concerns. Third, the Holy Spirit was already sending direction on a path to meet the Ethiopian. It was literally running to meet him vis-a-vis -vis 
Philip. Now, while you think about those elements, let me ask you a serious question. Now, if I ask you a question, everybody's going to answer, right? See, that was practice. Do you believe the words of Jesus? I didn't hear from you, Roy Bell. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Oh, amen. I, I'm going to demand that I have everybody's attention. Luke 11, 9, let's cover the words of Jesus. And I tell you, sounds like Jesus is being bold, authoritative, like he's heard from God. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Now, you have a certain familiarity with that passage so that you're going to have to knock that familiarity off and re-engage with what Jesus, as Messiah, says to you. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now you already know these words, but do your actions show that you believe them? See, intellectual assent to this is not the same as living that way. For instance, why do we store the things that we store if we actually believe that when we ask, we'll be answered? When we seek, we will find. When we knock, it will. why do we do it? You know why we do it. We want to be well prepared for anything that happens in the future, which is a way of saying, I do not trust God to provide for me today. Now, I'm not actually talking about finances. That can be some other message preached by somebody else. I'm actually talking about your ability to hear from God. That's why as a pastor, I'm tempted to lean on something that I know God said a long time ago. That's why as a pastor, I'm tempted to take a message that I had preached in the past and try to freshen it up some and preach it again. And while I was sitting wrestling with that, this verse came to me. And so I'm preaching to you on a topic that I don't think I've ever preached on in this way or with these passages. Asking is an action word. It implies vocalized effort. The effort begins in prayer and searching the scripture. Seeking. Seeking is an escalation in your level of effort. Seeking is more than asking. It's an even greater level of action. It implies even more effort that you could call pursuit. One is to ask, the other is chase it down, pursue it, gotta have it. Then we get to that third word, knocking. Man, knocking is a physical level of action. It implies persistence, tenacious effort. The effort begins in the scripture and is expressed in prayer that asks, seeks, and even knocks at heaven's door because you believe that heaven has what you need and he will answer you. 
When these elements are present, asking, seeking, and knocking through the scripture and prayer on heaven's door, Jesus Christ made you a promise. It will be given to you. You will find. It will be opened to you. Those are direct quotes from Jesus. You know what he didn't tell you? When. And see, that's kind of the nagging rub, isn't it? Oh, Lord, I believe you. I believe you. I believe if I ask you, you'll answer me. I believe you'll provide for me. I, I, I believe you'll speak to me. But it's an awful lot of effort to do this until you speak, and I don't know when you'll speak, so I'll just take care of it myself. Or I'll depend on somebody else. Or I'll store up during a good season and pretend the manna will not rot as I work through a Sabbath. You know, this promise was, uh, it was not for the apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists alone. This promise, Jesus said, was very specifically for everyone who asks, seeks, or knocks. Are you willing to show your belief in Jesus' words? Your belief would be expressed by consistently, passionately, persistently asking, seeking, knocking, banging on heaven's door for a real God direction. Not one from five years ago that you heard at a conference that was really Johnny saw Susie in the clouds and then a license plate and then somebody had Johnny Susie gum and so God said to me, Johnny Susie. No, I'm talking about seeking his direction in the scripture, banging on the doors of heaven in prayer until a new authority and boldness has come over you and you know what you must do. The other cool thing about that is Jesus actually said we could do it daily. <laughs> so there are some time limits on it, aren't there? Did you start and got frustrated and gave up somewhere along the way and decided to do it weekly or monthly or only when you were in trouble or only when you were out of money? How about that Ethiopian statement? How can I unless someone guides me? To start with, the Ethiopian was already in the process of asking, seeking, and knocking. He was already reading the prophecy of Isaiah. I am astounded how often men come to me and ask me for an answer about something in the scripture or about their own lives, and they have not sought it out themselves first. I'm astounded. It's like I became people's... Uh, Logos Library or something. Like, Pastor, I really want to know what this, what this passage that is somewhere in the Bible means. You mean you haven't even found its address and its location, but you're burdened about what it means without having researched it at all? Well, that's a really interesting way to approach the eternal word of God. This Ethiopian is already seeking. He's already reading. The next thing that happens is his good father had already arranged help running towards him. 
See, while he is seeking and while he feels incapable but doing it anyway, help is literally running towards him. Let's continue with Luke 11. We're already in Luke 11, so now we're going to pick up in verse 11. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I love Jesus. He is so pointed. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, we're not going to teach on Calve Comer and a Hebrew teaching device that Jesus used, that Paul used, that is found throughout the Bible. But I'm going to tell you that those words, how much more, are an indicator, a big indicator. It would be a light matter for you as a father to give something good to your child. It would be a light matter, even if you gave them something bad. The heavy matter is that your father in heaven is so much better than you on the light side of things. You can count on the fact that if you lightweights give good things to your children, your heavenly father gives better things to his children. That's really the point. The Ethiopian was asking and seeking and knocking and the good father sent his Holy Spirit to prompt Philip to run towards the Ethiopian with an open door to heaven. Do you realize that when you have doubts about this subject, you have doubts about whether this will work for you, you're really doubting the character of your father? Well, that hurt a little bit. I'm going to deflect for a second. When a prosperity pimp stands up on TV and demands money and is manipulative by doing that, you know what he's really doing? He's insulting God. Because each of us is commanded to believe that the Lord will bring us the provision we need daily. So to beg, to manipulate, to do those things is an offense against the character of God. But let's talk back to you for a minute. Whether or not you ask believing you'll receive. Seek, knowing you'll find. Or knock, knowing the door is open to you, says everything about what you think about the character of your father. I can't hear from God. Or, you know, I can occasionally. Or I, I want to. Don't blame your laziness on God's character. What we should rather be praying is, Lord, change my wicked heart lord change my slothful practices lord increase my faith because all i've stored around me proves i don't trust you as much as my lips keep saying i do you know one of the most liberating things you can do is sell everything you have and give the money away i've done that i don't know how many times in my life i agonize over it and then look forward to it, then agonize over it a little more, and then after it's done, I feel free as all get out. It's like getting rid of all the walking sticks you were carrying on your shoulders that became a heavy load. Most of you here today speak in tongues. 
I love that. I applaud the practice. I speak in tongues all day, every day. I have for 30 years. But there is something equally as amazing going on in this passage. You usually hear Luke 11, 13 quoted by men like Michael and me about surety that your heavenly father will give you the Holy Spirit, meaning that you will speak in other tongues, which is a gift manifesting the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is more than speaking in tongues. The Ethiopian is not said to have received the gift of tongues. It's one of the reasons I picked this story. No, he was led into the next important step for his life. See, he's in a desert place seeking the Lord. The Lord does help him through the scripture. And then the presence of the Holy Spirit vis-a-vis Philip comes and helps him. And then the Ethiopian determines... I see water. What prevents me from being baptized? He knew the next step for his own life. Philip didn't have to tell him. There's no indication when you read the passage that was selected that baptism is featured at all. The man knew God's will for his own life for that moment, for that instant. Didn't require a pope to tell him. He was led into the next important step for his life. The door to heaven's secrets were opened to him. This started in the word, and next, his faith-filled step was at the Holy Spirit's prompting. Every good thing in life begins in the word and is completed in the power of the Spirit. Turn with me to John 16, 13. Are you guys tired of listening to me yet? I don't mind honesty. I actually kind of thrive on the challenge. <laughs> John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. All the truth. You gotta love ESV. He doesn't guide you into truth. He guides you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. See, more than tongues or healing or any of the other amazing manifestations of the Holy Spirit, The Spirit declares the words of Jesus to you. How could you speak in tongues every day, believe that you are being moved of the Spirit to pray in a language you do not know, and then simultaneously being secure that the Lord would speak to you in the language that you do know about words that are already written on a page for direction for your life? Does anybody grasp the gross hypocrisy in that? When you engage with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the Spirit will illuminate your path in His Word. I am so sick of charismatics telling me about their dreams, what they saw in the sky, what they looked down and saw a pattern in the dirt. 
Direction for your life is found in the Word of God as illuminated by the Spirit of God. That's why there's so many nuts, fruits, and flakes on our side of the aisle in Spirit-filled Christianity. Do you guys remember the name in Hebrew for the Holy Spirit? Amen. Ruach, meaning spirit. Ha, in this case is of. Kodesh, holiness. Think through that for a minute. What we've turned into a title, the Holy Spirit, in Hebrew is more functional than that. The spirit of holiness. It helps me to turn that back around. Now that's not how it's written in Greek and the Greek is inspired in the Newer Testament in the same way that the Hebrew is inspired in the Older. But it helps me to put that in that order. It reveals another one of our insecurities, doesn't it? How can we as sinful and flawed men interact with the spirit of holiness? How? I'm glad you asked. Let's see if we can answer that question. We're going to be in James 2, verse 22. See, we both take it for granted that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and in the same moment have tremendous fear that the Spirit is speaking to us. I mean, it's crazy. You've grown up in a charismatic Pentecostal circle. You've grown up with Christianese speech. So you're like, hey, do you believe God speaks today? Yeah. Okay, I want you to share a word with this congregation 30 minutes from now. (laughs) Performance anxiety happens. And I'm not actually even speaking about giving words or prophecies. What I'm actually speaking about is you determining God's will for the next bold, audacious step of faith in your life. Well, I believe that I'm going to Mexico in 10 years. I believe that I'm going to Chihuahua this year. I believe that I'm going to Turkey in three years. That's great. I'm talking about today, man. James 2, 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And, somebody say and. And. He was called a friend of God. This is amazing to think about. Abraham didn't have a written Torah, Nevim, or Ketuvim. Moreover, he did not have a Brit Hadashah, Newer Testament. And yet, he earnestly asked, sought, and knocked at heaven's door until direction was revealed to him. Look, my wife asked me more questions about what's going to happen this week, every week, than I have answers for. Can you imagine what that looked like in Abraham's life? Now pack it all up. We're going. Where? He's going to show us. Abraham then took faith-filled steps in the direction that he had been given without knowing how any of it would work out. Adonai considered this kind of faith, this kind of faith, the same as being righteous or 
what your Bible calls credited righteousness. I want you to get something. He is not actually righteous and neither are you. It's kind of like when you buy a house and you say, I'm a homeowner if I make 360 more payments. You're not actually a homeowner. You're being credited with ownership of the home. You're being told if you continue on this path, the home is yours. You can live like it's yours right now because it's as good as done provided you finish. He's got credited righteousness just like you. We're still working at the positional righteousness part. I love how our theologians confuse credited righteousness and positional righteousness. You can be credited with righteousness and be standing in something that is unrighteous. You know what your credited righteousness compels you to do? Move. So, Abraham in this passage in James is called a friend of God. That's an incredible statement. It's a rare one in the Bible. I mean, before we had cutesy little songs like, I am a friend of God, you know. These were pretty radical statements. This statement is repeated in the prophets, repeated in the writings. If you're taking notes, you can go read Isaiah 41.8. You can read 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7. In other words, the law, prophets, and writings speak about the friendship of Abraham with God. Abraham was granted right standing with God, but more than that, more than some kind of ticket to get to heaven, which is a ridiculous concept to start with. Heaven is coming this way. He was called the friend of God at least three times in the scripture. So what are the characteristics of a friend? Well, genuine intimacy and concern for one another. You know somebody's not your friend when they're not genuinely concerned with your life. You ever had somebody go, hey man, how are you doing? And you start to tell them and they're like, well, anyway. Probably not a friend. Genuine intimacy and concern for one another. How about fidelity in our actions towards one another? That would be a mark of friendship, don't you think? Friends don't tell each other they're going to do things and then not do them. How about protection and guarding of each other's person, reputation, or name? If Morgan and I are friends, and somebody says something that I know to be untrue about Morgan, I will not remain silent because we are friends. And certainly... Friends share details with one another that the rest of the world's not privy to. That's part of what it means to have a friend. Little girls are masters of this. It starts somewhere around kindergarten. Guys, it takes a little longer. Let's talk about how we as men and women that are flawed and sinful but created or rather credited with righteousness can interact with the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of a Holy God. We're going to pick up in Genesis 18, which opens with Abraham already credited with righteousness. 
And the chapter is going to start with the Lord appearing to him at the Oaks of Mamre. And then it's going to quickly move to three special visitors that interact with Abram, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. We're going to pick up in Genesis 18, 7. Amen. Are the rest of y'all there? Chris Hall, you there? Amen. That boy's growing into a man. 18.7. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf. Y'all ever consider how old Abraham is? <laughs> That's all you ever hear preached about. Uh, brothers running and making babies. Sounds like he's not in a nursing home to me. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who quickly, who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk, cheese and milk, dairy products, and the calf that he had prepared, that's meat, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham has three special visitors that come to see Sarah and Abraham. And I'm, I'm going to stay on point in this text. I'm an hour into a message. So I'm not going to point out to you Abraham's eagerness to show hospitality to three special visitors that represent and speak for Adonai. I'm also not going to continue to point out that Abraham ran in the attempt to be of service to God, that, that he showed that kind of eagerness. Probably, I shouldn't spend a great deal of time pointing out that Abraham served a very non-kosher meal by today's kosher standards. So either Abraham was wrong or our kosher standards have been exaggerated beyond what the Bible actually teaches. That's an interesting thing. Instead, let's keep moving to the issue the Spirit has before us today. Verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Three angelic messengers show up and, Where's your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. <laughs> we keep her back there. We want some buffer between the wife and angelic visitors. She's having a rough time. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Do you see how he's saying the Lord said, but we have three special visitors? That's a study that for a lifetime. It's a lot of fun. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So she's in the tent, but she's kind of still in the room. She just didn't want to be seen. She's listening at what's going on. She's very much a part of the conversation. It's just nobody else knows she's a part of the conversation. Eavesdropping. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Very graphic language. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have 
pleasure. The Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh? Notice Sarah laughs, but Abraham has to field the question from God. If you've ever wondered about the authority structure in a home, the Bible is pretty replete with the examples. Sarah laughs, but Abraham is accountable for her laughter. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Sounds like God heard it exactly as she said it. He just left off the pleasure part. I wonder if some of the things we say would make the Lord uncomfortable sometimes. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. You ready for verse 15? But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He, being the Lord, through one of three men that are angelic messengers of some kind, says, no, but you did laugh. That's a pretty dramatic confrontation. One of the first things that you have to notice about Abraham as a friend of God is that his household was not free from sin or errors. That should be encouraging to you. You also have to notice that Abraham does not attempt to hide, redirect, or deflect the representatives of Adonai's direct confrontation of his household sin. You get no hint of Abraham like, hey man, she's in the tent, leave her alone. That's my wife. Maybe you misheard. You get none of that. You get none of the things that you get from men normally when you correct their wives in front of them, which you should never have to do. The man should be correcting his own household. Instead, Abraham's actions show total repentance. After all, they did end up having Isaac at that time next year. See, repentance is not sitting on your face and crying. It's not feeling really, really bad, making sure others know how bad you feel. That can be a ridiculous show. It actually is kind of nauseating to me sometimes, especially if you get the sense that it's not genuine. Repentance is turning in a different direction. They turned from this laughter and went on and had Isaac. <laughs> I kind of love that. Friends, speak plainly to one another and allow each other to boldly confront sin in the other. That's a protection. It's a kind of receiving kindness from Adonai to be rebuked by him. He's treating you as a son and as a friend. To treat the holy God as your friend. How do I show friendship to the Lord? It starts with you not hiding any area of your life in the back in a tent. Inviting his examination of all that you are, all that you say, all that you do, all that you think, and everyone you're responsible for. That's an act of friendship. And it benefits you. When something is wrong, the right response is never to be in defense. It's to be in repentance. Put plainly, how do you as a flawed, sinful human being, although credited with righteousness, interact with the spirit of holiness? Plainly put, you must have no secrets from the spirit of holiness. As your friend, he must be invited to address every area of your life. 
even the embarrassing areas. After all, he's here to lead you into holiness. This is an act of friendship and trust. And you get to show by your repentance that you have intimacy with him. It is also an act against friendship to try to avoid this kind of interaction. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to who? The spirit of holiness. Do you really believe for a minute that the Lord wasn't dealing with them through his spirit? And they weren't going, no, no, nothing to see here. And then he sent someone to them to directly challenge it, and they lied to the messenger as well. See, that story's not really about money. Money's just how it shows up. Now that you understand Abraham's actions of friendship, let's keep this thing positive and look at how Adonai responds to his friendship. How do you respond? For whatever reason, I looked over, I just saw Christina. I can picture Christina, what are you, 25, something like that, 22? 26, I was very close. It's always polite to ask a woman's age publicly. Let's picture little Christina. And she is on the swing set in the backyard with little Kendall. When Christina tells Kendall the secret, what's expected next? Kendall has to reciprocate. And then they hold hands and say, we're BFFs forever. And, you know, that's a real little girl thing to do. It's also a godly thing to do. Check this out. Verse 16, the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Notice Abraham's not pouting in his tent. He's not grieving the rebuke. Abraham has got up and he's walking with the men that represent God. And in verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? See, when a man boldly deals with sin in him or his household, this leads to a greater level of friendship with a holy God. Abraham didn't go off mourn, didn't go off and pout. Rather, he walked on with God. Verse 17 indicates that because of this, God was not willing to hide from Abraham what he was going to do. If you're not putting that together yet, when you share your secrets with God, he starts to share his secrets with you. That's what friendship does. This chapter goes on to reveal Abram being read into the very details of God's plan concerning both judgment and salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah. The saving of Lot. Not only can you hear from God, church, But if you really want deep spiritual insight, the way to get it is to have a deep, meaningful reckoning with your own sin. Christians that deal lightly with their own sin never get deep spiritual insight. They may sound like they're great teachers, but they don't know themselves well enough to know God well. This is the key to being qualified. Adonai will reveal his secrets to the man that keeps no secrets from Adonai. It's how you get true spiritual insight, and it's what you must cultivate in your personal walk if you want to have confidence that Jesus' words apply to you when he says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open to you because there's something we didn't deal with. It's not just insecurity. 
when you have any known disobedience in your life, it destroys your confidence that you can receive from God. And so people are like, I'm just not that smart. I just don't have a good memory and all. What a bunch of hogwash. You're not sure that you're actually holy. You haven't straightened it out between you and the Lord. Oh, you're credited with it, but you're not sure you're standing in a righteous place. I've been preaching for a while, so I don't think I'm going to walk you through Amos 3. I traditionally teach law, prophets, writings. I do it in order for a reason. I simply want to tell you that in Amos 3, 1 through 3, God is taking on Israel because he considers them to be his friend. And he's calling them into great accountability for the way that they're walking. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? It's a prerequisite for walking with God that you constantly examine him and examine you and repent from the difference between you and him. Constantly. This idea, well, I'm saved, so I'm righteous. And the examination stops. Something's really wrong with that. And it's why people don't believe they can hear from God. So in Amos, by the seventh verse of the third chapter, it says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. When you as believers are credited with righteousness, when you ask, when you seek, when you knock, when you repent of sin and treat Adonai as your actual friend by keeping no secrets, then he treats you as his friend by sharing secrets kept from the rest of humanity with you. Is that not a special thing? Acts 13 describes David as having a heart after God. Everybody loves that. That happens in friendship. You become like those you're friends with. Did you ever have a friend that liked the kind of music you didn't like, but the longer your friendship went on, you're like, okay, I kind of get it, you know? Friendship genuinely shares intimacy and concern for one another. Friendship shows genuine fidelity in your actions towards each other. Friendship spends time with the other party caring about their reputation, their name. They do the same thing for you. And certainly friendship allows you to become like your brother or your God as you share secrets with each other. Jesus said, I give you the secrets of the kingdom. Why do you use those words? It was prophesied here this morning by Joe. I want to circle to Psalm 25, zero in on this. I promise I won't keep you that much longer, but if at the end of the day you think it was a waste, then take it up with your pastor. Psalm 25 in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. <laughs> you can see how aware... David was of his sin. You can see the way that David is transparent about it after all he's writing in the best-selling book of all time. These are published national hymns. You can see the way that David refused to downplay his error. He called it great iniquity. Pardon my guilt. And the word that he uses is 
Not just like a little bit of guilt. It is iniquity. For it is great. Men who are close to the Lord can feel the difference between their friend and them. And they want to be like their friend, so they're quick to repent of the difference. Verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. It is because of David's awareness and focus on his iniquity that he could also revere or fear the Lord and have confidence at the same time that instruction would be given to him about what he chose. The more you are able to look at your own life interacting with the spirit of holiness and the word and see where it doesn't match and repent, the more you can be confident he is giving you the path to choose. David was a friend of God. He interacted with the spirit of holiness. David kept no secrets from Adonai and knew that Adonai would keep no secrets from him. David had confidence that he would be instructed by God, and he said so, that he could hear from God. That kind of confidence comes from knowing that you have not kept any secret from God. Look at verse 13. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. David was a man that continually asked, sought, and knocked at the door of heaven. He searched the scripture and asked his friend Adonai to search him. David repented better than anyone in history. And that's how we as flawed humans interact with the spirit of holiness. This is friendship with Adonai. It shows that you want to be like Adonai. It shows that you are not keeping anything hidden in your tent from Adonai. It also means that he will keep nothing from you. When you walk like this, you can be confident that you do hear from God because he is your friend and you are treating him like he is your friend. By the way, in verse 14, where the ESV says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, the actual Hebrew word there is sowed, secret, revelation. In other words, the secrets and the friendship of the Lord are for those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. He is a good father. You should know that he will reveal his secrets to you if you reveal yours to him. Every person in this room should be confident that if you walk in repentance and if you ask, seek, and knock by searching the scriptures that Adonai will send his spirit of holiness to reveal to you the next bold, audacious step of faith in your credited righteousness. I could spend all day illustrating this from the life of Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah. We could go through the book of Daniel, but I have a long drive ahead of me and you have Bibles. 
I could tell you that every time Daniel repents, God speaks to him hundreds of years of history in advance. I could tell you that every time Daniel gets on his face and repents for things that I don't even think he did, an angelic messenger shows up and reveals secrets nobody else knew. I could tell you that Daniel is a friend of God because he's called loved and highly esteemed by every heavenly messenger. We could turn to the book of Revelation. We could talk about the Apostle John, who was the beloved, another way to say friend, who kept no secrets from God. We could see that Jesus Christ sent his own angel to John to reveal all of the apocalypse to him in advance. See, when you're a friend of God and you keep no secrets from him, he shares with you secrets that even angels have longed to look into. I could spend time telling you that Psalm 91, which you love to quote, you know, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Or if you're a King Jimmy fan, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I could tell you that Jews all over the world, but in the Alexandrian Jewish community, at the time Jesus is walking the earth, we have writings from them that say the shadow of the Almighty is to be understood no other way than the effects of his word on your life. See, when you dwell in the secret of God, by telling him the secret, intimate parts of you, his word comes alive in you and directs your life. By the way, if you want to see that reference to Psalm 91, look up Philo of Alexandria in 25 BC and you will figure it out. Since we're now we're in 20 minutes in, let's close. Let's do that with a scripture. Let's start in John 15, verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. Doesn't that sound like the father shared secrets with Jesus and Jesus shared secrets with you? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. If you're not getting it yet, dear Christian, you may have entered the kingdom just wanting to be a servant. Truthfully, that would have been an easier road, but a far less fulfilling one. The servant wants to be rewarded for his job. The servant expects severe punishment for his negligence. The lines are very clear for a servant, and honestly, most Christians live like that. But you at Remnant, you are called to be a friend of Messiah. Sharing your secrets with him and him sharing his secrets with you. Your love has to go beyond duty, beyond fear of punishment. If you want to do this, you must deal honestly with your sin because it's a matter of friendship with your king. You're called to walk with him. You're called to be in passionate pursuit of being like him because he is your friend. He then shares his insights with you because you are his friend. 
He desires this friendship with you. And the very best life you could have is to respond fully, fully to him. He already knows what's in the tent. It's funny that anybody could think that a little piece of animal skin would hide something from the Lord, and yet we do it all of the time with the animal skin covering our hearts. That's why the Bible tells you to circumcise your heart. The way that you'll receive greater insight and revelation in your own life is to speak openly with the Lord about insight and revelation into your own life. When you know the recesses of your own heart and what's hiding in there, when it doesn't have to be pointed out to you, when you were telling him about it, he will share things with you you couldn't have known any other way. In our closing moments, I want to circle back to the idea that you cannot hear from God, the fear that you cannot. That Ethiopian eunuch, he was in the desert. Are you in a desert from actionable heavenly intelligence? I mean, you get an encouraging word for someone sometime, but you literally do not know that God has spoken to you what you must do now. Are you in that kind of desert? Because we don't have to live that way. You don't have to go years between directions, months between directions. Because that Ethiopian story started with him searching the word. But it ended with him finding water in a desert. You may be standing in a desert right now going, my track record's not that good. I thought I heard from God and I fell on my face. And I thought I heard from God and I did. Me, I didn't hear nothing. You may be in a desert, but you can find water today. The thing about that desert is it makes you desperately need the Word and the Spirit. I kind of think that we've been a little lazy with the asking, the seeking, and the knocking part. We're just waiting for Philip to run up and help us. Yeah, but this church is called to be Philip, not the Ethiopian. We spent the entire message in the position of the Ethiopian for a reason. You can't both be the Ethiopian and Philip in the same story. Philip never hesitated. He was intimate enough with the Lord to be transported by him. Some people would say that that Ethiopian eunuch lacked a kind of testicular fortitude. However, he showed bold, audacious faith. His father met him in the desert while he was searching the word. In the midst of asking, seeking, and knocking the spirit of holiness, already had direction running to him. The eunuch found the chutzpah to declare that he wanted immersion into the waters God had provided in the desert. You have to find at least the kind of moxie that this eunuch had.
Lord, I'm in a desert, but I want to be immersed in the next step for my life. I think you can put this to test this week. I'm going to seek direction in the scripture for a divine encounter. I'm tired of hearing about him, Lord. I want to have a divine encounter with someone. Give me a revelation worth bringing to somebody who is in a supernatural wilderness. This week, to get that, you'll have to be honest with the Lord about your fears, about your concerns. You'll have to deal with them in repentance. And repentance is not, Lord, I'm sorry I'm this way. It is running the other direction from that feeling. What you are going to experience in doing this is you will find out the Holy Spirit was already running with you towards, towards you with direction. You will come back together with testimonies here. Your testimonies will be, I was scared, but I pushed forward anyway, and the Lord met me, and I took what he gave to me, and I put it to work in the world around me, and here's what happened. I'm going to tell you that I would rather you not seek the Lord just for a member in here. At some point, you've got to get out of the kiddie pool. You can't go deep sea fishing in your own aquarium. Go to Walmart. There's plenty of lost people there. Go to a gas station. Go with something that God himself revealed to you. Not that you learned at YWAM. Not that you learned in some other program. Something he showed you. That'll cause us all to grow in confidence that we can hear from God. Before we do that, I believe that we're going to have